Hey guys, uh, turn with me this morning to the book of Haggai. Haggai. Right. We are making our way through the Minor Prophets, I think as all of you guys know, um, beginning the book of Haggai today. And, and let me just, we're entering into kind of a new phase in this study. So let me begin with a timeline uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed on where we are. Uh, thus far, we have walked through two-thirds of the Minor Prophets. Uh, we began with what are known as the pre-exilic prophets. The pre-exilic prophets, um, and that took us to the world of the divided kingdom. Israel was split into, you had the northern kingdom that was still called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom that was called Judah. The pre-exilic prophets primarily spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel, and those guys that we looked at were Jonah and Amos and Hosea, and Micah. And Jonah was writing somewhere around 785 BC, so almost 800 years before the time of Jesus. Um, and so that's where we began this journey, looking at those guys. The pre-exilic age ended, though, when the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it, kind of scattering people to the wind. Uh, and that happened around 722 B.C. And that took us into the exilic age. And in the exilic age, which is where we've been for the last few weeks, uh, we looked at Zephaniah. And Zephaniah was writing about, not quite, but about a hundred years after Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, we looked at Nahum, Habakkuk, and then finally last week, Obadiah. And so all that takes us now into this next and final section, uh, which is known as the post-exilic age. The post-exilic age, and we'll be looking at Haggai this week and next week. Uh, Judah was overtaken by Babylon. Uh, that happened around 598 B.C., 598 is when Judah uh, started the process of basically kidnapping people and carrying them away to Babylon. There were several waves of exile that took place. In the process, Jerusalem is destroyed, and most notably for our purposes today, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple that was built several hundred years prior by King Solomon, the son of David. Um, and so what follows the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem or it's around 70 years of exile, or what's commonly known as captivity. The Babylonian captivity is how you'll hear it referred to. Uh, in 539, though, in 539, so just uh, you know, a little while after this all started, 
Persia, the Persian Empire, conquers Babylon. So, I mean, this is just a period of time where nobody stays in power for very long. Assyria gets conquered, Babylon gets conquered, Persia suddenly is in power. And what happens is, it begins that post-exilic age, and that's when the people of Judah, the remnant that has been carried away to Babylon, are allowed by the Persians to suddenly begin returning to their land, returning to Judah, returning back to the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up today in the book of the prophet Haggai. So we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning of Haggai, probably written around 520 BC. And let's read this morning Haggai 1 through 12. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the words of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. So this brings us into this post-exilic age, and whether you realize it or not, we are actually nearing the end of the story of the Old Testament, um, which is a part that most people never get to. Like if you've ever started reading the Old Testament in Genesis, you know, most people peter out even by the end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So um, this is the part that people know very little about, I've learned, in the church. And so it's part of the reason why we've been studying all of this to begin with. Um, the story that Haggai is telling is the story of rebuilding Jerusalem. Uh, it's also told in the books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. But in particular here, not just rebuilding Jerusalem, but rebuilding the temple. As I said earlier, the original temple was built by Solomon, David's son, and by all accounts, it was an, like an architectural wonder of the ancient world. Uh, it was large, it was ornate, it was full of meticulously handcrafted details. It was the product of a great deal of thought and intention, 
and was also the product of a season of peace and prosperity for Israel. Like they were flush with cash and they put it into this temple. No expense was spared. But that temple was completely destroyed, um, which in the eyes of most historians brought to an end essentially the first era of the Hebrew religion or the first era of Judaism, which is commonly known as ancient Judaism. Ancient Judaism began around 1300 BC, 1300 years before Christ, with Moses and the Israelites leaving Egypt and receiving the law, including the Ten Commandments from God. And after that, a series of judges came into the mix who were essentially military leaders who held power in Israel. And what followed that was a period known as the monarchy, where suddenly Israel had a king. It started with King Saul and then went to King David and then King Solomon. But after Solomon, the country split in two into this divided kingdom with the northern country of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it stayed that way for hundreds of years before the period of the exile began. After the exile, though, when the remnant started to return to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple, that began a new era of Hebrew religion, a new era of Judaism that is most commonly known as Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. And Second Temple Judaism is significant for a number of reasons, and I can't get into all of them today, but I'm going to mention three real quick because I think these are important. First of all, Second Temple Judaism is the period that the Old Testament, as we have it today, uh, was essentially compiled and and finished. Um, So much of the Old Testament was already written when the Hebrews entered into this period, but the Hebrew Bible, or what we think of as the Old Testament, was not compiled until the Second Temple era. Several books even originated during this period, like the one we're reading today, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, uh, Malachi. Uh, The Psalms were not completed until this time period. It's quite possible that Isaiah was not completed until this time period. Uh, The book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah that we've already mentioned, they they all come out of this time period. Uh, The book of Chronicles as well as one. Um, Additionally, not only was the Hebrew Bible essentially finished, during this time period, it gets translated into Greek, uh, into what's known as the Septuagint, which is a significant thing, and I'll, I'll tell you in a minute why that's significant. So, so that's the first thing we would just take away from Second Temple Judaism. This is when a, a huge portion of our Christian Bible is essentially completed and compiled. And then, and then next, in this Second Temple period, Israel truly became monotheistic. They truly were worshiping only one God. And you might think, well, wasn't that always the case? But the answer is really no, which is the whole reason why this exile happened, remember? That they weren't only worshiping Yahweh God. They were including Yahweh God in their worship of a host of other gods as well that we talked about, most notably Baal, who has been mentioned many, many times throughout the Minor Prophets. And even today, like most historians, both Christian historians and secular historians, view the people of both Israel and Judah during the pre-exilic, exilic time period as essentially being polytheistic, not being monotheistic people. 
But once they come back from exile, once they come back to the land, they do what we see them do in the text today, which is they listen to God and actually do what he's telling them to do. And they, they get rid of all the other Canaanite gods that they had worshipped in the past. And they truly become a people who worships one true God. Um, and so they return to worshiping God alone. So that's another significant feature of this period. Third, in Second Temple Judaism, this is the period of time that Jesus comes out of. And so when we read the gospel accounts and we read about the Judaism that Jesus comes up in, that he grows up in, right? We're reading about Second Temple Judaism, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Um, all of these things are a part of this time period. The temple that Jesus goes to is not Solomon's temple. It's the second temple. It's the one the people here in Haggai are being called to rebuild. Um, also, Jesus and the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament constantly, but most often what they're quoting is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. Um, so, during this period, Hebrew as a spoken language starts to fade out. It's still used in formal communication. It's still what you would find on scrolls, for example. But just popularly in society, people are speaking Aramaic and they're speaking Greek. Um, so even when Jesus comes around, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic and Greek. Uh, I think it's, it's quite possible he knew Hebrew. I think he certainly could have read Hebrew because we see him reading scrolls in the synagogue. So people still knew it to some extent. It wasn't a dead language by that point. Um, but they're reading the Old Testament in Greek more than likely. And when the New Testament writers, mostly the apostles, start to write the New Testament, they are writing it in Greek. And so that's just another significant feature of this time period. And it's the period, I say all that to say, it's the period that begins here with the book of Haggai. And so all that in mind, let's look at our text today. Verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So Haggai is significant for a number of reasons. First, Unlike most of the other minor prophets we've looked at, Haggai is written in prose. It's not written in poetry. Many of the other books we've looked at are poetic in nature. And so we don't get this same kind of like poetic, prophetic oracles like we've seen in some of the other minor prophet books. Also, uh, while the book tells us next to nothing about Haggai, like who is he, where does he come from, what's his story, we don't know, tells us next to nothing about him. It tells us a great deal about the time in which he is prophesying. And there are some very clear date markers in the text. Notice verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. I mean, almost like down to the hour, he's telling us when this is happening. This is incredibly specific. And it's a specificity that we haven't seen in most of the other minor prophets. And what's interesting is we know exactly what date 
he was talking about. He would have been talking about August 29th of the year 520 B.C. August 29th of 520 B.C. We just haven't gotten that kind of specificity up to this point. And some of the prophets we've looked at, like Obadiah, we don't even really know when this book was written. We're making a guess about when it was written. Um, Haggai seems very concerned with recording detail. He'll give us four more specific dates in this book. Um, And you may say, well, wait a second, you said this is August, but he says the sixth month. August isn't the sixth month of the year. Well, that's true in the Gregorian calendar, which is what we all follow, but in the Hebrew calendar, uh, the first month of the year would have been our equivalent of like March, April, because the Hebrew calendar mostly revolved around the festivals, the Hebrew festivals. And so the year for Hebrews essentially began with Passover, give and take, uh, give or take a few weeks. So we also meet a cast of characters here in addition to getting a specific time. It says the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet, but not directly to the people. The word of the Lord came through Haggai specifically to this guy named Zerubbabel and Joshua. And don't be confused. This isn't the Joshua of the Old Testament who has a book named after him, right, who took over from Moses. This is a different guy. And what Haggai tells us is that Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah and that Joshua is essentially the high priest of Judah at this point. But there is no temple, right? So, so What's a high priest doing, right? Like, where are things happening? What does it actually look like? What Haggai doesn't tell us, though, is that Zerubbabel is actually the heir to the throne of David. Like, he is the heir from the line of David, who, if there was a monarchy at this time, he would be the one sitting on the throne. And yet he can't really call himself a king at this point, and the people can't call him their king, because even though the Persians have allowed them to return to the land and rebuild, it's different from saying they've been granted full freedom to be their own nation again, right? That's not exactly what has happened here. They just get to come back, they get to rebuild their place, and they get to live there. Um, We also see Zerubbabel and Joshua in the book of Ezra, um, which is a book you could read concurrently with Haggai. Um, And we'll see Joshua again when we get to the book of Zechariah. And so these are significant leaders in post-exilic Judah. So enough history. That's a lot of stuff. Let's look at what the Lord said through Haggai. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, what house is he talking about here? He's talking about the temple, right? The temple is a shambles. The people have returned, but rather than concentrating on rebuilding the temple, they have instead concentrated on building comfortable houses for themselves. Now, God's not unaware that the land's been decimated. God's not unaware that the people need a roof over their heads. The issue is that the people are doing more than building like temporary shelters for themselves. They are building permanent, comfortable homes, and they're spending a lot of time, and they're spending a lot of money doing this. And in God's sight, you may have noticed he said, it's like you're working and you're getting money, and then you're just putting it in a bag with holes in it. And they're building homes for themselves. And God says, it's like you're squandering the resources you have. So what's the problem here? Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So, so God's not a man right? God doesn't need a house to live in. That's not part of this. What is he wanting? He's wanting the people to put him above their own comfort. He's wanting the people to put him above their own comfort. God says, you're running around taking all your time and your thought and your energy and your resources, building your paneled houses, it says, while my house is in ruins. And and calling these paneled houses probably means that the inside of the homes were lined in cedar panels. And I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Israel or of the Holy Land, but it does not look like North Louisiana, right? Like there are not trees in abundance. So cedar in particular was something that had to be imported, which means it was not cheap, right? And it also means the people are putting a lot of thought into the detail and to some extent the luxury of the homes that they're building. So, um, so as we go on, God says, you guys are building what for the era would have been not only comfortable houses, but somewhat luxurious houses. And meanwhile, the temple is a pile of rocks. In other words, you are more concerned with your own desires and to some extent your own glory than you are with my glory, says the Lord. Why does he want them to build the temple? So that it will glorify him, is what he says. So that he may be famous and praised. And God says, until you get it through your heads that what I want is more important than your comfort. What I want is more important than your comfort. You're going to experience drought and famine. Like you're putting all your time into probably raising crops, right? engaging in trade and commerce, you're going to all this hard work, and yet I'm going to bring it to nothing. Because guess what? It all relies on me. Anything you bring in, anything the fields yield, relies on me. Not you, not your hard work, not your intelligence, not the amount of time and energy you've put into it. And so I can just cut it off if I want to. Now the beauty here is that this ends well, right? After 70 years of exile, they actually listen to the Lord and do what he's telling them to do, right? They begin the work of rebuilding the temple. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. So everything that God had wanted for his people in the pre-exilic and in the exilic age, now finally, people are willing to listen and do what God's calling them to do. So let me wrap this up for us this morning with a couple of thoughts. Um, 
First, we are no different. We are no different. Uh, We are all guilty of pursuing our own comfort over and above God's glory. In the case of the returning remnant of Judah, I think God was looking for two primary things from them that he is also looking for from us. Two primary things that he's also looking for from us. And the first is this. God desires hearts that are willing to put him first even above our personal comfort. Hearts that are willing to put him first even above our personal comfort. This is a recurring theme in the scriptures. God seems far more concerned that we be obedient to him than he is that we are comfortable. Go back to the Israelites in the wilderness. God rescues them from Egypt. He does incredible things. But they get out into the desert, and guess what? God's primary concern is not that they're eating four-course meals. They get out into the wilderness, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry, and they start longing for Egypt. Remember when we were slaves back in Egypt, how much food we had to eat? And so what's so fascinating is God has done so much up to this point. God has shown so many of the plagues, the Passover, uh, the Red Sea, uh, giving them victory over enemies in the desert. God's done so many things for them. And then the moment they get hungry, they start pining for slavery again. They were hungry and uncomfortable, but they were free. God had rescued them. God had saved them. And... It's like it didn't matter at that point. I think part of the example of Scripture is that that God actually uses discomfort. He uses difficult seasons. He uses what the Scripture would call trials to shape us into the people that he would have us be. He, He tests us. So if the purpose of your life has primarily been your personal comfort, if that's been the primary end of your doing and being on a daily basis, if, if like the whole goal is to get the degree, to get the job, uh, to get the money, to get the house, to get the notoriety, to get the 401k, to get the cush retirement, to get the nicest plot at the cemetery, like if that's been the, the trajectory of your life, it's time to reassess This is what Haggai is calling the people to. Like, if that's been your thought process, the Bible would call that worldliness. The primary things that you're seeking after, that you're going after, that you're making a priority in your life, are things that will ultimately pass away, are things that are not eternal. And if that's you, the scriptures are looking at you going, really? That's what, that's what you take away from this? Consider these words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Like consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, meaning non-believers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows they need homes to live in. But listen to this. He ends this by saying, But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about all of these things. So so what do I do? You reprioritize, is what Jesus is saying. Rather than placing things like clothing and food and where you live and all these kinds of things at the top of your list of priority. Recognize that God knows that hierarchy of needs. He's well aware of it. He created it, right? It's not up to you, Jesus is saying, to figure out all of that. When you first, as a priority, when you first seek God's kingdom, a kingdom that has no lack, a kingdom of abundance, when you seek God's righteousness, all of these things will be added to you. So money is a part of this comfort thing here in Haggai and in our own lives. For some of us, the thing that truly brings us security is not God, it's money. And that's incredibly dangerous because the scripture suggests that money is a terrible God. That it is a God that will always, always, always fail you. And so there's this element with Haggai where God wants the people to eschew personal comfort, not necessarily forever, by the way, but in the here and now. But part of that is taking the money that they were investing in their lavish paneled homes and redirecting that toward the building of the temple, redirecting that towards God's will and what God had for them. So God desires people who are willing to let go of comfort to follow him. But then secondly, God desires also here the manual labor of his people. God desires the manual labor of his people. God is calling them to work, to not sit back in comfort and assume that other people are going to do this stuff. They are the ones that he has called. They are the ones he sent Haggai to. They need to, as he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. You, go get the stuff, and let's get, let's get started. So again, this makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew 9, when Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The problem is not that there's a lack out there, a lack of abundance. The problem is not that the resources aren't available. The problem is that people don't want to go get them and build the house. Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Listen, God is seeking laborers, and the question that's posed to all of us is, are you really willing to take up your cross and follow Christ? Like, people come to Jesus at various points in the Gospels, and they verbally express their undying devotion to him, and that I'll follow you anywhere, but but some immediately balk and take it back when Jesus basically says, all right, well, let's go. 
<laughs> okay, right now? You know, I've actually got a few things to do first, right? So there are people who give him lip service. There are people who say what they think he wants to hear, but when the call is actually to step into obedience, suddenly the excuses come out. Matthew 8, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has nowhere to live, is what he's saying. He has no paneled house to dwell in. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The things that you think are priorities, Jesus says, you've got them all out of whack. These people have the same problem that their ancient ancestors had coming out of Egypt and that we also have. We're so busy pursuing our own goals, our own comfort, our own desires, that we've actually placed God a few rungs down the ladder of priority, even while giving him lip service. We think once, once I get what I want, then I'll be in a position to follow Jesus, to like really be obedient to him, to really do the stuff he's called me to do. But, but if that is your posture, that posture of once I get where I want to be and get the things I want, then I will do what Jesus wants me to do. If that's your posture, you will perpetually kick that can down the road. You will. This is a problem I have with the teaching of Dave Ramsey. This is going to offend some of you guys. Jimmy. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm all for people getting out of debt, right? Like debt is an encumbrance that, that truly can limit kingdom work. But, but here's the thing. If I devote my life to building personal wealth rather than first to generosity, which is the mode of Christ, and if my way of thinking is that once I get my personal wealth built, then I can be generous. Once I've got the retirement squared away and I've got three to six months of cash in the bank, right? Once I've done all of this stuff for me and my family, then I will be in a position where I can start giving. I think what you're going to find is that once you've devoted potentially years of your life to building your own personal wealth and that being the priority and focus, that there's not like a switch that you could then flip where suddenly you go, and now I'm going to start giving it away. I'll be generous then with what I have. And here's the thing. If you won't be generous now, my guess is you won't really be generous then. It sounds good in theory, but if your singular focus is one thing, if it is yourself, if it is your comfort, if it is your security then are you really in a position to do what God's called you to do? If he is not really first, and if we don't really trust him to do what Jesus says he will do in Matthew, that he will provide, that he will take care. I think for some of us, our fear is that he's not going to provide in the way we want to be provided for. 
that he's not going to provide for us and give us the lifestyle that we have or that we want. And you know what? You may be dead right about that. But does that mean he's not worth following? Haggai tells the people, you're literally pouring your money into a bucket filled with holes by investing it in yourself and your homes and not in the will of God. The teaching of Jesus is, if you will devote yourself to the Lord, if you will devote yourself to obedience, if you will embrace discomfort, if you will work when he calls you to work, then God will take care of you. That's not a prosperity gospel. That's not God will make you wealthy. It's that God will give you what you need because he knows what you need. And if he does it for birds and he does it for grass, why in the world do you think he will not do it for those created in his own image? We've bought into a lie that we need to jettison. Let me leave you again with Jesus' words this morning and, and just listen to this and notice his wording. Seek first above all else before giving thought to anything else. Seek first, what? The kingdom of God of which Jesus is the way. Seek first the kingdom of God and what else? God's righteousness. In your own life, in my life, what is it you want me to do, God? Seek the kingdom of God and seek to model the righteousness of God. This is him saying, be holy as I am holy. And then what? And then all of these other things will take care of themselves. When Jesus was calling people to follow him and calling them to leave families and leave livelihoods, leave the dead to bury their dead, He was also calling them to count the cost, right? And in worldly terms, in materialistic terms, the cost was very high, right? I'm sacrificing a lot to follow Jesus. But in the economy of the kingdom, it's wisdom to leave this world behind and to give ourselves entirely to the way of Christ is the epitome of wisdom. It's to see the value in God's kingdom in a world where there is no lack, where everything is as God would have them be, and in a world where you will not be separated from the Father because of your sin, where a way has been made for you to be reconciled to God through Christ. If you don't see that, as Jesus says, as the pearl of great price, that's, or the treasure buried in a field, and it's worth you selling everything you own so that you can go buy the field and have the treasure. If you don't see it as being worth literally making everything else in your life, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and on and on, then you're missing it. You're missing what this really is. You're missing the beauty of it. So the prophet Haggai, as we'll continue on next week, calls the people to stop for a moment, right? 
to turn their attention from themselves to God, who has just brought them back to their land, who has miraculously released them from a foreign power once again. And the question is, are you going to be obedient? It's the same question placed on us today. Let us pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the truth of your word today. And even though it is challenging, Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that desire obedience above all else, that see you as being worth it, as being more valuable, more important than anything else in this world, even our own comfort. Father, would you help us to lay everything on the table, to be willing to listen to you and to do the things you've called us to do, and to recognize that you are good and that you will provide, that you will take care of us. Help us, Father, to not be people of little faith, but to instead be people of great faith who trust and obey. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.